Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites to see if they stand the test of time. I'm Patrick. I'm Shane. <laughs> and I don't know which way we're, what order we're going. <laughs> and I'm Chris. And this week we're reviewing 1989's Sea of Love with Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin. But before we get to our summary of that film, first a word from our sponsor. Wasn't easy finding a sponsor for this one. I, I know it's a little risque of a film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by the New York Yankees. It's that time again. The world's greatest baseball team is proud to sponsor the 30th annual Breakfast with the Yankees for 45 men and women in the Manhattan area whose actions warrant this bit of good fortune. Eat pancakes with your favorite players, swap stories with legends. And we might even have a few surprises that you'll be telling your kids about for years to come. Remember, this is an exclusive event. So bring your invites, bring your IDs. You won't want to be late for what we're serving. Holy cow. You know, I've always thought most Yankees fans were criminals anyway. So that just seemed to make, <laughs> make sense in the film. It's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> there you go. All right. Sea of Love. Frank Keller is your cliche-riddled New York homicide detective. He's great at his job, constantly at odds with his supervisors, divorce, and of course, a raging alcoholic. His ex-wife seems to be a badge chaser, since she remarried another homicide detective with zero personality, which only seems to feed Frank's depression about reaching middle age and his 20th anniversary as a police officer, his true mistress. Between sessions of belling up to the bar, Frank is assigned to investigate the murder of a man in Manhattan who has been shot dead while face down in his bed, naked, listening to an old 45 record of Sea of Love. I know what you're thinking. This must be a suicide. But Keller is not your ordinary detective, and this super sleuth immediately believes that this man was a victim of foul play, and not the laugh-out-loud kind that involves an albino, Goldie Hawn, or a warm cucumber. Keller finds three clues that support his theory. A lipstick-smeared cigarette, a want ad that the dead man placed in the newspaper, and fingerprints of the perpetrator. Keller's theory of murder is eventually supported when he eventually meets Detective Sherman Tuhi, a monster of a man played by eternal 80s sidekick John Goodman. Tuhi tells Keller that he is also investigating a man who died in a similar manner in Queens. Tuhi suggests that he and Frank collaborate on their investigations, and although everything about Frank screams lone wolf, Keller agrees to join forces with the future King Ralph without hesitation. The drinking duo feel that their best chance of catching the killer is by placing rhyming ads in the Lonely Hearts column of the newspaper, Seeking Dates. An added bonus for Frank is he gets to drink for free and talk to a lot of women where his true charm shines. The deceptive detectives place their ad and begin their round robin of dates. The ploy is to trick the women into a date, offer them a drink, and collect their prints off their wine glasses, the same way I met my wife. 
but she was the one wearing a wire and arrested me. <laughs> Frank has dinner with several women with the enthusiasm of a New York politician looking for his third mistress. One woman, divorcee Helen Kruger, played by 80s bombshell Ellen Barkin, shows no interest in Frank and leaves without touching her wine glass. But not before awkwardly overacting the scene. Since she left Frank in the restaurant, she must be a lesbian, and they write her off. Shortly after the first round of dates, a witness played by someone who resembles a portrait of a serial killer states that he saw a young black man with cornrows running from the scene of Frank's crime. It's always the shady guy with the cornrows and not the loner white guy with an anger management problem, isn't it? Since they are only New York police officers who don't bother to get the full names of anyone, including their witnesses or Helen for that matter, they can only conclude that their killer is a black male who is overly critical of white men's twerking abilities. Later, while Frank is shopping for one at the neighborhood market, he runs into Helen, the lesbian again. This time, she is much friendlier. She must not be high on anything this time. She informs him that she manages a chic upscale shoe store and simply dresses like a hooker in a bright red leather jacket for shits and giggles. <laughs> Frank does not reveal his true occupation because he's a good guy who lies about everything. Feel sympathy for him yet? Frank agrees to have a drink with her. Why Helen wants to have one with him is beyond me, but both people seem to love making bad decisions. Eventually, Frank takes Helen to his place, against his better judgment and a warning from the babe not to do so. By the way, Frank, as Coach Harris is giving you some non-nerdy advice, Helen is talking on the phone next to you. Why not have Dan Connor get a cop to swoop by and fingerprint the phone for you? Nah, Frank's other head is doing the thinking now, and they all end up at his place where they start getting passionate. But Frank panics after seeing a gun in her purse and treats her roughly. The gun turns out to be a starting pistol. But fortunately for Frank, Helen is into the rough stuff and gives Frank a nice reach around before fucking his brains out. Frank and Helen begin a romance because they are that damaged. Frank has a chance to obtain Helen's fingerprints on a glass at one point and just about everything and just about everything else in the bedroom and kitchen. But she is a good lay, so he decides to wipe the glass clean. However, their relationship becomes strained when she discovers that he is a cop. Co-figure, a woman who doesn't react well when she finds out you lied to her. But Frank really likes having sex with Helen. Did we mention that at, at uh, any point? He, he's wallowing in his own sea of love, so his feelings for her must be real, right? Unfortunately, Frank discovers that Helen responded to each of the homicide victim's ads. That whore. When he confronts her... Helen refuses to admit to anything, so he throws her out. Later, Helen's ex-husband, Terry, forces his way into Frank's apartment. You remember him, right? Terry is the nice young man who led police to believe that it may have been a black man who committed the murders earlier in the film, but apparently no one in the entire New York Police Department homicide unit ever thought to draw a connection between him and Helen throughout the entire film, despite the fact that they both have the same fucking last names. Let's repeat that for the third time. Public records show that Helen and Terry have a child together, and all three of them have the same last name. Anyone wonder why Dustin Hoffman was asking for a lot of rewrites on this script before he agreed to do the film? Not me. Anyways, Terry orders Frank at gunpoint to lie on his bed and show him how he made love to Helen. Terry confesses that he had done this with his ex-wife's other three boyfriends before he killed them as well. However, at no point did Terry confess to wearing cornrows. Frank is able to overpower Terry because he's that kind of super cop who gets in and throws a lot of punches, then gets out. He tries to call the police, but can't dial 911 and hold a gun at the same time. 
The killer makes a lunge at him, and in the ensuing struggle, Terry is accidentally thrown through the window and plunges to his death. Frank and Helen reunite. She forgives him because that is how Hollywood works, and because he killed her psycho ex-husband. They resume their relationship, and Frank assumes the Terry spot of angry white male who obsesses over Helen, because that's God's plan. And that is Sea of Love. All right, Sea of Love, released on September 15th of 1989, the same day as The Big Picture with Kevin Bacon, In Country with Bruce Willis and Apartment Zero, the same month as Kickboxer, Black Rain, Relentless, Shirley Valentine, and Johnny Handsome, another film with Ellen Barkin. It grossed over $58 million in the United States and over $110 million worldwide. It was the 22nd highest grossing film of 1989 behind Field of Dreams, Tango and Cash, and Harlem Nights, and in front of Pet Cemetery, The Abyss, and Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. And that's all. That's all I do on the show. I think I was busy <laughs> watching Star Trek Five uh, instead of watching this one. Oh, I actually saw this one in the theater. I remember seeing it. So yes, yeah, so did I. Actually, yeah. Uh, and I still like this film, although I was very critical of it in the summary of the film because it's got a lot of plot holes. But uh, it it it, I, it was a very entertaining film, and essentially this was my introduction to Al Pacino. It, that I had not at this point in my life, I had not seen the Godfather films because I just hadn't gotten around to them yet, and I had not seen Scarface. And Al Pacino, this was my introduction to Al Pacino as an actor. You know, I, I'd probably seen him in like bits and pieces of television, but not a full film yet. And he disappeared in the 1980s that this is kind of his first film back after being gone for four, four years. I think it was a revolution that he'd done four years before. Uh, did you know? So he was not he was not the actor. I mean, he become in the 90s. He becomes the cliche in the 70s. He's the actor. The 80s. He's just the invisible man. What did you guys think of, uh, you know, not only just his performance in this film, but just his absence from the screen entire, almost entirely during the eighties. Well, it's funny you say don't remember him um, from the Godfather, but I actually remember him from dog day afternoon. And I think that's probably because of either video or maybe television. So I was aware of who he was and, when I was working in the video shop, the movie Revolution used to get rented out quite a lot. So I had seen that, and I liked the Eurythmics, and Revolution had Annie Lennox in it. So there's my connection of seeing that <laughs> movie and remembering it really well. But Sea of Love, I mean, to me, I haven't seen it for a long time, but it still holds the attention, and it's largely thanks to the chemistry between Helen and Frank. And I think the fact that it's a love story combined with a murder mystery and a burnout cop drama all rolled into one, it's my kind of movie. So I liked it, even though there was some gaping plot holes, as you say. <laughs> well, I think for me, um, I, I identify with Al Pacino from Scarface. That's really where I saw him from probably first. I would say it, this film does get a little tainted from his – Actually, for me, from scent of a woman cliches, to, to be honest with you. But um, I think he did a, a sufficient job. I'm, I'm kind of surprised. Did he just get burnt out in the 80s or? It, well, the films he was doing, Scarface did OK, although it wasn't as big a hit in its day as it became on video. I mean, it became mm -hmm. more of a cult classic. Revolution was a bomb. 
author author that he'd done kind of between Scarface and I think Injustice for All was kind of a bomb. So the only two films that were really of significance other than Sea of Love in the 80s are Injustice for All and Scarface and they come at the I think 1983 and 1980. What so, was Godfather 3? Was that like 90? That's 1990. 92? So 1990 he is it's got a he has a career explosion. He has Godfather 3, he has Dick Tracy which he gets award uh, nominated for an Academy Award and you know he he pops out about two films every year through, through most of the nineties. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he, he returned, but I think he also became the cliche at that point. I mean, he plays the Al Pacino type character throughout all those films. Yes. <laughs> so, as, <laughs> as you say, scent of a woman, not by, by far, not his best role by any stretch of the imagination, no. although he won no. the Academy award for it. It is a, uh, it, it is a hard film to watch now. Um, because he is just chewing up scenery throughout the entire film. But now, Chris, had you seen this in the theaters or, or around or on VHS or, you know, I guess it was VHS around this time frame, or is this something you came to later? I think this is the first, this is definitely something that I came to later, but I think this is the first time that I actually sat through from beginning to end and watch it. it. It gets a little slow for me in the middle and I get a little bored. But I did remember seeing it on, I think it was HBO, you know, bits and pieces of it. It's Sorry. funny to see Al Pacino. He still has a couple of moments when he's yelling out and he's delivering his lines in an over-to-the-top manner. He still has those few moments in the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even at the end. Uh, well, the female lead in this, Ellen Barkin, which doing my research for this podcast, they said, oh, this was considered her first role as a sex symbol by many. And I say those people never saw 1988 Siesta, uh, which she was in with, uh, I think it was Gabriel Byrne, um, because she plays a sex symbol in that role. And it has a, a, a big nude scene in that that I, I haven't seen the film probably in 20 years, but I remember the nude scenes explicitly. So I have a question for you guys. Is Ellen Barkin 80s hot? You know, I, I'm honestly not sure. Because there are times when I think she was 80s hot, but then in that scene when it was like the morning after and her her hair was nasty and stuff, and I was in HD, uh, even through all the makeup and all that, I'm like, she might not really be 80s hot, but I'll, I will say she is mildly 80s hot. Well, I don't know how you can say that, Chris, because in the 42nd minute when Ellen arrives on screen, she just she that's when the movie hits its stride. I think it lights. She lights up the screen. I think she's 80s hot. And I remember remember her from the Big Easy. That was a really sexy role, too, with yeah. opposite Dennis Quaid. That also came before this one. I don't know what they're saying. This is her first sex symbol role. She both of those films or maybe it was the first time she was sexy in a grocery store. Uh, that could be, too. I, I don't think many people saw Siesta. Maybe that's why, because it was such a, a poorly, like poorly received. And I, over here anyway, in Australia, it didn't get much of a cinema release. Oh, it ha hardly had any cinema release over here. It's one I caught on VHS, but actually, yeah, no, I think I here. caught it on, I think I caught it on HBO and it was after that, uh, the sex scene comes very early in the film when she's like washing the blood off of her that they, in, in like the first 10 minutes of the film. And I went, okay, I'm, I'm going to pay attention to this. What's going on here? Uh, no, that red, I love her. I think she looks awesome and very eighties hot in that red jacket. <laughs> 
it's very That's very 80s for sure <laughs> that is very yes. 80s like hookerish pretty woman type of thing that i just mm-hmm. uh that that just struck me as like god that's that's a bright red hooker jacket leather hooker jacket to me <laughs> but um but her lipstick did match so it was okay that is true i'm agree, <laughs> i'm agree with shane i i say she's 80s hot that there there's something about her 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 you know her look in the late '80s. That Big Easy Siesta, this film, I thought she was amazing looking in it. And it, you know, to talk about specifically the sex scene in this film between her and Al Pacino, I don't really care about Al Pacino, but in 1989, I thought that was one of the hottest sex scenes I had seen on screen. I mean, it was it was pretty interesting. And it was one of the things. Also, one of the things that made me remember this film at all is that. Uh, I remember that scene, which comes about the 48 minute mark, if I remember correctly, Shane. (laughs) Fast work. (laughs) But he said 42nd. I said, wow, she's on screen for like six minutes before that sex scene. So it's, uh, it it, it is a a pretty captivating. And for any lonely guys out there, you should probably give it a watch. What did you? I mean, it's very believable as a jaded cop would fall for her, I think. Uh, I mean,. Yeah, but she yeah, just she see. just screams damaged. <laughs> she just every, oh, yeah. every, the only thing lacking was crazy eyes from her. Yeah, uh, she those they were almost there too. But it, it it's a weird like it's the one one of the plot holes or one of the things of this film that I find the hardest to believe is that the two of those characters falling in love with each other. It's just that he does so much to piss her off between the lying and, you know, throwing her up against the wall or throwing her into a closet and, you know, just accusing her of being a murderer. (laughs) And she just like, seems to just take it and like, Oh yeah, really? Well, I'm into that too. And he just instantly falls in love with her. I'm going, what is your problem, man? That's well, she even she's... she even oh sorry, Chris. So she even says at the start, um, "You're not my type." So basically, she said that in the beginning, and he kept pursuing it. Well, I, I always took it as it's not he's not her type because she's not into a printer, which is like that's the best you can come up with as a printer, is <laughs> <laughs> for occupation, and that you know he's pretending to be something he's not so she's not really seeing the true him and then when they finally meet in the grocery store he's acting more like himself which it just is still not very good but you know that she that's where she buys into him a little bit more there well i mean he lies to her the whole time even when he doesn't necessarily have to <laughs> and from start to end he's lying to her yeah, I think in that first meeting, it just uh, from Ellen Barkins, and she shows confidence. And she, um, as we say, she knows what she wants. She's a single mom. So maybe, yeah, she just didn't like him to begin with, but he grew on her or something. <laughs> like a fungus. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, and he lives in the dark all the time, so why not? All right, let's talk about John Goodman. One of his earlier roles, although he was a a constant supporting actor throughout the 80s until he kind of became famous with Roseanne, which comes out on television in the fall of 1988. So he's already on the career rise. He's been, you know, on Roseanne for a year at this point in time. But he always seems to be the 80s best friend or partner. I mean, in Raising Arizona, he's a partner in crime with William Forsythe. Uh, he's the best buddies with Dennis Quaid and Everybody's All-American. He's, you know, domestic partner with Roseanne. I mean, he just always seems to be playing that same role. And he never broke, really kind of broke out of it. He never became the leading guy, although they tried to shoehorn, in, shoehorn him in with the babe and 
King Ralph. But what do you guys think of John Goodman? I thought in, in this particular role he was kind of forgettable. Uh, as you say, it was something he'd sort of done before or done an outline of this character before. And he was in and out and he was supposed to like all of a sudden become friends with, you know, Frank and help him on the case, which they did and they worked together. And I don't know, I, I just, I, I didn't really adapt to his character as much as I probably should have, I guess. Um, yeah, too forgettable for me, as much as I like John Goodman, but not not a great role. It kind of disappears in the second half of the film. I mean, he's not really yeah. there. He just, it's like, oh, now Ellen Barkin's here. We can get rid of John. Well, he does sleep with one of the candidates as well. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> she had some nice balloons. <laughs> 80s hot, Chris? Mm, no. <laughs> I mean, she was a sweet character, but oh, all right. She was sweet. I think she had a great personality. I mean, the the line, I think my favorite line in this film was he was when uh, Frank said that you can get rid of those balloons, and she's like, "It's the only thing holding me up." I like that line. So, <laughs> Chris, what and about? I thought uh, John Goodman had a really good line where he, uh, the Al Pacino's on the phone to him about you know taking Ellen Barkin's character Helen home, and John Goodman says, "What are you going to do? Send your dick to a dick to the lab?" <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> that was pretty good too. It was a good line, Chris. What did you think of John Goodman? Well, you know, I, I'm a fan of John Goodman. I it I doesn't it doesn't bother me that he is a supporting character. Um I think in this film it really wasn't about him and Frank really was a lone wolf cop, like you mentioned in your summary, so he was a little bit out of place. I think there's lots of signs like we kind of alluded to in the summary that, you know, Dustin Hoffman ended up not doing this because he wanted all these rewrites. And it sounds to me from watching this film that it was very justified. And John Goodman's character is just one of those signs where he need to either be strengthened in this film or eliminated completely. And uh, his performance, I thought, was was fine. It's, it's what you come to expect from John Goodman, the the goofy kind of funny comic relief. If he would have been a child actor, he would have been the fat kid in Goonies. <laughs> he wasn't the fat kid in Goonies? Uh, I don't know, but he does do a mean... Tr- uh, nah, fuck. I screwed up the joke. <laughs> well, this has got a, a really good supporting cast. I mean, some of them before they became famous, some of them just... You know, as they're as they're becoming famous, you know, watching the film, I always forget Samuel Jackson's in the film for very briefly at the very beginning, playing a hood. Who could imagine that? And his uh, character's name is probably the most non-offensive character name in '80s movies. I don't know what was his character's name. The black guy. Oh, was that what it was? <laughs> That's what he's billed as. All right. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. Isn't that politically incorrect? Because yeah, in the credits, he's listed at, listed as black guy. 1989, probably uh, today. Yes. In 1989, not, possibly not so much because <laughs> he doesn't ha- his character doesn't have a name. So you got William Hickey, you got Michael Rooker, who ultimately is our killer. Uh, you got Richard Jenkins and he's a long term, long term supporting actor who got more famous in the uh, 2000s with uh, some uh, at least one Academy Award nominated performance. Paul Calderon, and then John Spencer from the West Wing, who had a very brief part as the basically the police captain tell, who tells um, Al Pacino and Goodman what they can and cannot do as far as the the uh, dating situation. So it's got a really good supporting cast. I mean, it's 
it's kind of funny to look back at it now and see how all these actors went on to much bigger roles. Sure. Yeah, agreed. And I like William Hickey. I always think of uh, Pritzi's honor when I see him. And I totally forgot about Richard Jenkins. As, as established as an actor as he is, I, I remembered Samuel L. Jackson, but not Richard Jenkins. And he was good, and he's always good, but I think he had that connection with Frank over the, the wife. And that scene where he shook his hand, I thought, was a really nice moment as well. I actually am a big fan of Michael Rooker's. So, I mean, he kind of is typecast as the, the bad guy anyway. So when uh, I think this is the youngest I've ever seen him look, so I didn't really recognize him at first. But um, I thought he um, I actually wish we would have seen more of him in this film. I thought it would have been better because I thought it, in many ways it was a little cheap the way he was introduced again at the end. I All of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, we've got a murder mystery in here. Throw the X in and uh, let's wrap this puppy up. But um, I did like a lot of these supporting actors. I think William Hickey now is, for me, just I associate him with Christmas. Uh, <laughs> Christmas Vacation. With, with Christmas Vacation. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, he's great in it. I, he's great in this, too. I, I like the scene he was, but he was in in this one. But that's kind of what I associate him with at these, this point. Yeah, I expected him to have more when I saw it. For even the first time I saw this, I, I, I saw this. You know, after Pritzi's Honor, and I saw him in this film, and I'm like, after him having such a big role in that, that he would have a bigger role in this. And he basically has just that kind of one scene and then gets carried off the bed by Al Pacino. And that's it. You know, and I'm like, wow, what happened to William Hickey? You know, that. But he was great in that scene. No, he was great in the scene. I liked what they did with him. Am I walking? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he was playing Uncle Lewis before there was Uncle Lewis. So. There's a really significant scene, too, with the the poem that he said, and that's the one they used in the singles ad. So it was Mm -hmm. a good scene. I would have liked to have seen him meet Helen. That would have been a good scene. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chris, you mentioned Michael Rooker popping back up at the end of the film and that how you felt that kind of, I guess, cheated. And that's something I want to talk about. One of the major criticisms of this film is they feel that the film breaks the rules of whodunits by introducing a character in the last act as the killer. And he's not introduced in the last portion of the film. He's introduced much earlier in the film. But there's nothing really to draw a connection to him as the killer. They there's they never indicate that there's anything leading back to him. What do you guys think of the ending of the film? And do you think they, in fact, cheat? And Chris, I think we know your answer, so I'll let you go first. Yeah, I, I didn't like how they uh, introduced, re I guess, reintroduced him back into it, especially because he is a great actor. And I think there's a lot of that they could have done. With this, I mean, that would make it a completely different movie. This really does seem like it was more a love story than a murder mystery to me. So I don't know how they would have rewritten it. But if they were going straight murder mystery, they they screwed it up. They just should have had him a little clues throughout. Maybe a picture of him in her house with his daughter or something. I don't know. But just dropping it on us like that. Yeah, it was lame. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, this is where I had the biggest problem with the movie, and and having not seen it for quite some time, I had I couldn't even remember who the killer was. So it was all going to be a bit of a surprise to me. But early on, you notice you, you hear that uh, Helen says, "I always like to live for love." And I think that kind of gave it away that maybe she wasn't the killer, as heavy as the the movie wanted you to think she was. And then having Michael Rooker be sort of, when he was introduced, that was only fairly brief anyway, and he got given a card from John Goodman, ring me if you hear anything, and then he gets reintroduced, and then he just pops up at the end. Like Chris said, it was almost like a throwaway effect, and they thought, we want to finish this, and put him back in and I like Michael Rooker too but I just that this is my biggest problem having him as the killer I mean especially since since we know that Helen had an ex-husband and she's suspected as as a killer I would have thought it would be maybe a basic police procedure to find this guy and question him see if she had any sort of violent tendencies or some in the marriage and if they would have done that basic little bit they would have realized that it was this guy so maybe they were put off because at first they, he didn't get her prints at first. So it took him a little bit more time to yeah. sort of research who she was. And then by that time, mm-hmm. I think Frank was thinking with his other head and <laughs> wanted to be with her. Yeah. So then they didn't get, he didn't get the, all the facts that he was supposed to. And maybe that's how they missed it. Well, and I'll, I'll agree with that. And I'll agree with, I, I don't think it's a cheat. I think that, there's clues there. It's just not overwhelming clues that the audience was never going to figure it out. But in the same respect, I never thought Ellen Barkin was the killer. The, even the first time I saw it, I I knew mm-hmm. that there was somebody else out there. We just hadn't seen. We just had, they hadn't drawn the connection. Did you, I mean, when you were a guy, if you can remember when you first saw it, did you really believe that it was a possibility she was the killer? No, not in that red jacket. <laughs> I just couldn't stop looking at that. <laughs> Well, since I hadn't really seen it all the way through, I didn't really remember a whole lot of the plot. So this it was kind of like watching again uh, completely over. And I never really got that impression that she was the killer, especially since this is a Hollywood type movie. I figured that uh, I, you knew they were going to end up together and somehow it was all going to be OK. Uh, that could be the cynical part of me. Yeah, that could be. These movies. All right. There was a little little bit of basic instinct about it, too. Uh you know, the forbidden romance, is, is she the killer? She's the prime suspect. But basic instinct didn't come out for a few years after yeah, this. It came out three, I, year, three years later. Yeah, yeah. I remembered little, little scenes that sort of reminded me of basic instinct, although not quite as good, of course. Well, but basic instinct leads you to believe, it, one, once a, another film that's left up for interpretation, that she could be the killer. Even after you've seen the film, she could be the killer. Yeah. And you you don't know at the end of the film if she's the killer or not, and it's left up to your interpretation. Although I think they give a strong inference that she is, and, yep. and it's it. But that that's a film that, that, that at least the danger to the character from the female presence is exists throughout. I mean, it's always it, there's always this uh, you know kind of forbidden nature, this uh, ominous presence that you know she could turn on Michael Douglas at any point in time. I never felt like Al Pacino was in any kind of danger if he was with Ellen Barkin. No, that's right. Yeah, the only trouble uh, danger I ever thought he would be in was uh, was his ex, the the ex wife 
wife's new husband, I thought that there would have been a, a decent fight between those two. Oh, I th- I thought you were going to say STDs, but that's that's oh uh, yeah, that's that's true too. This was eighties, and <laughs> she did sleep around pretty easy. Yeah, apparently th- at least three guys in the you know previous couple of months. Well, the one guy he n- he never went on dates with any of them. He never touched them, so it was okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, well, it certainly highlights the difficult situation um, for blind dating any single guys out there. I mean, it wasn't an easy uh, few first dates there that Frank had in the restaurant. So one walked out on him. The other one was an older lady who he tried to charm, and then she saw him later on. And, yeah, so it didn't any guys out there that thinking about uh, dating maybe should not watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is 80s dating, and it's a lot scarier in the 80s. You know, now you can do online dating. You know, you can meet them there and chat before you ever meet. Swipe Fair left enough. or right. Exactly. Uh, you know, the- what I did like about this film was um, the grittiness of New York, and I thought that they presented uh, the, the city wonderfully in it. And uh, even though it's now dated 80s music, I appreciate it a lot because it was – nostalgic for me and, and it was a throwback so those two things combined together and minus helen's 80s hair i thought it, it looked it was a great little time capsule of the late 80s yeah you're right about the music it was like uh heavy in saxophone and and that sort of somber jazz tunes and yeah that that music it, it was set good. a great mood yeah yeah no, I, and it's funny. It's funny because you mentioned that because I was paying attention to the dialogue that the the uh, the city itself seems to be almost a a presence, almost a threat in there. Because Al Pacino talks about it when he's explained to Ellen Bark, and he says this the city, the way it affects people, you know, and it affects me, mm-hmm. you know, that it's is the, you know this is before the kind of the '90s revitalization of New York City. 80, 80s New York is seen as you know a dangerous place, like danger around every corner, muggers, killers, and '90s became more of the tourist attraction where they made it safe for families to come visit and uh, and see things. So it, you do see this kind of a, a late '80s version of New York and the the danger that it, that could cause and the the fear that it creates in people. Yeah, even in the filming when they're at the very end where they're walking in in public where there's movie extras and real New Yorkers, a real New Yorker threw his shoulder into Al Pacino and he just kept on going. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was it was a great integration into the city and it was a character in and of itself. Yeah, that's true. I, I liked at the start of the movie when they were doing the Yankees thing and just after that, um, when the, the guy turned up late with his son and he gave the he gave him a break and told him to sort of you know take off. I, I just thought that showed a really. You got from the start that Frank did have a heart. He was a nice bloke, even though he was this cop who you know may, maybe drinks too much. He's been in the job for twenty years. He still is a nice bloke, and um, I liked how he let that guy go with his son, so they wouldn't get arrested. Yeah, that shows he's the heart of gold, a New York detective at that point. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, although I, know, the, I thought it was a nice touch. No, it was a nice touch, but at the same time, it's like the kid is thinking, what a dick. <laughs> so he doesn't know that his dad just got away from going to jail. He's thinking, what a dick wouldn't let us in. You know, that's the, oh, well. All right. You want to wrap it up? That's not what Helen said. I know she didn't. All right. Sea of Love. Does it stand the test of time? Shane. Uh, 
Oh, it, I really did enjoy watching again. I thought Al Pacino, he he's not at his best here, but you just can't take your eyes off him. I've already mentioned how hot I think Ellen Barkin is, and not just her looks and the way she walks, but her voice. There's something about her voice I like. The story, you know, I I didn't know who the killer was, so I was a little bit surprised in the fact that I forgot Michael Rooker was the the one. But other than that, it's worth watching, but it only just stands the test of time for me. Chris? As I said, the the pacing was or the plot was, wasn't all that great. Uh, it definitely needed some rewrites. I was bored a little bit in this film. Uh, I'm not going to lie. The, the pacing was, was a problem, but I think this was a great cast. I liked the, the setting of it. I liked the music of it. It had a little bit of humor and it, it is a nostalgic time. So I do think it looks a little bit dated with some of the hairstyles, but because it's set in uh, in New York City, which doesn't really change with the buildings, I'm going to say that it stands the test of time. All right. This was my pick. And I saw this in the theaters. I really liked it when I saw it in the theaters. Um, I know I at least owned it at one point on VHS. Now I have it on my little voodoo account. And I... Despite the plot holes, I enjoy it. I mainly enjoy it for uh, somewhat subdued Al Pacino. Somewhat. I will. He had not fully crossed into 90s Al Pacino yet, but you can see the, the, the beginnings of that and Ellen Barkin and one of the best sex scenes I'd ever seen. And to this day, I think I've ever seen that. I thought it was just, a, a, you know, it's not what I usually watch films for, but it was very memorable to the point where, you know, nearly 25, 26 years later i still remember that scene and it, it was uh as i said anybody who's really lonely out there about 48 minutes into the film that's where you gotta go watch so <laughs> well it better be a good scene because three guys got killed face down for it that's true <laughs> i don't know I, I always go back to the roadhouse sex scene i think but oh, i can see where you're coming from oh no Ro- Ro- kelly lynch and roadhouse is is phenomenal too that is the one saving grace of that film but uh, I'm not going to take anything away from that that that, you know apples and oranges you know I uh, you know I like apples I like oranges (laughs) fair enough (laughs) all right I go back to the fast times at Ridgemont high bathroom scene you like watching uh, I like watching a guy masturbate Uh, I like watching (laughs) to each his own you know while he's looking at women in Shane higher into girls and you're into dudes all right okay spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'd much rather be watching Phoebe Cates get out of the pool than Judge Reinhold in Fast Times at Ridgemont High yeah Phoebe Cates is what I would certify as 80s hot All right, that does it for this week's review of Sea of Love. Uh, Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun, it doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, and information on upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network, including Movie House Memories, this show, Lunchtime Movie Review, Mail Bonding, The Number Two Review, Sunday Seconds with the Duke and fil- Film School, Film House Hustlers. Say it. Film House Hustlers. I know it. It will be easier once it's up and I see it on a regular basis. Oh, shit. I swear, I Dream of Genie's coming? <laughs> no, that would, be, that would be the Jetsons. I just oh. got text. text. 
Additionally, you could follow us on all our little side projects. Chris hosts the number two review as well as Filmhouse Hustlers podcast, which can be heard on MHN. And you can follow him on Twitter at Haley Creative. Shane writes regularly for sydneyunleashed.com and is in a contributor to cultradioagogo.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at movie underscore analyst, where you can keep up on his film reviews and celebrity interviews. Finally, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you've downloaded us off either iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate our podcast on either one of those two platforms. And if you have a chance, write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. You can also review Minute 48 on there if you would. Yeah, yeah, if you just want to talk about that two-minute sequence of the film. Well, (laughs) that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. And I'm Shane. And I'm Chris. And we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only the theme music for lunchtime movie review fireworks is provided courtesy of alexander nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a creative commons attribution 4.0 license all original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the mhn podcast network lunchtime movie review and fuzzy bunny slippers entertainment llc unless otherwise noted